Hello and welcome to Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast, a podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah and thanks for joining us for our latest fortnightly episode. I'm back today with Moose Mutlow. We talked a couple of weeks ago about safety outdoors and what we didn't get a chance to talk about was his massive passion for outdoor education and environmental education and I thought it was worth getting him back to tell us a little bit more about his project in Yosemite about um, environmental education. So welcome back Moose. Oh thank you for having me back. How, how did you end up at Yosemite? I ended up in Yosemite, I'd, I'd spent about a decade working for Outward Bound around the world leading trips in the backcountry and then by chance I was talking with a a colleague and they talked about an opportunity to becoming an education director at the Olympic Park Institute, which is up on the northwest side of the United States, it's opposite Seattle. And I got that job and went back into essentially classroom teaching, uh, for want of a better term. It was working with contracted schools that come in for three to five days of exposure to natural sciences and a little bit of group development. Not so much adventure work. We didn't do climbing or anything like that. We did science. And uh, as a former classroom teacher, I, I trained as a classroom teacher in my 20s. I, and I hadn't really used it that much in a formal setting. It was really fun to get back in to that. And after five years of being an education director, I transitioned to be a project director to build uh, a brand new 224 bed facility in Yosemite National Park. So people can just come to Yosemite and do courses? Yeah, we have about 250 schools that have it as part of their overall curriculum. And pre-COVID, we worked with about 15,000 kids in Yosemite each year and nationally at our other campuses, which is Nature Bridge is the national organization. We did about 35,000 students a year in multi-day exposure. And, and what does one of those programs involve? So most of them have a, a hiking component, some physical where they're going to be going out and doing something. There's a little bit of uh, what we call ESL, emotional social learning. So the idea of working as a group. And then schools will pick a particular focus, whether it's geology or cultural history, and figure out how to weave that into a multi-day experience. And so you'll have groups that come and maybe focus on national parks and what national parks mean and the history of national parks, and then look at it within the context of a very contemporary piece in the last hundred years, and then what the land was being, how the land was used by indigenous people prior to that. And then what formed it as far as glaciation in Yosemite. Uh, so you have this, this story you're telling. And what you want to do is b- have them build connection and excitement uh, for learning. And it's some teachers use it to reignite maybe mid, mid, mid-year for a school group or to, to set a standard at the start of the year or maybe as a, a reward at the end of the year. Yeah, so they can treat it like just a, a couple of days out doing a hike but also they can link it back to loads of different things in their curriculums, I suppose. And the idea, that's the idea. science is best when it's living. The idea that you're outside of a lab. I mean, I loved science as a kid because you got to put things in test tubes and blow things up and like have buds and burners with your hands. It was all very <laughs> exciting. But to actually be out in the woods and talking about the impact, particularly in, in, in where we are, the impact of drought and the idea of fire and the intensity of fires that we have in California is 
hard to put into words. At the paralyzing effect of a big wildfire, we spent 90 days essentially inside our house because we had such low air quality from a fire that was 30 miles south of us. Um, so you you want to move to a position in education where you're dispelling the fear and you're giving you a little bit of hope. So we ha we teach fire science within our curriculum with the aim of understanding that in a system that's been so adversely affected by drought, we need to get in there and do active management of forests to, to reduce the risk of big fire, but also to preserve them long term and not have these sterile, high temperature fires that just wipe everything out. Like you see in uh, Greece or in France or in Spain, but you're also experiencing in the UK with these real high heat intensity on moorland, uh, which is way beyond the sort of destructive practice of what grass shoes has already do. It, it really destroys the seed bank uh, when you have those high heats. Yeah, and there's there's so many so many um, negative effects of that environmentally. There's of course it's devastating, but also the the number of people involved in trying to tackle fires on that scale was just it was quite something to see how many um, fire service personnel were were used trying to stop just one of the moorland fires a couple of years ago. It was yeah, it's it's really it's devastating. So I was on a fire in um, the U.S. working as directing the river operations. We were ferrying firefighters backwards and forwards across a river in order to, to try and stay ahead of the fire front. And there were 8,500 firefighters on that fire, a whole city of people trying to fight the fire. So do you find when, when the children come to Yosemite, do you find because they're aware of these things they're more engaged with what you're trying to teach them there can be it's a lot of fear there parents and teachers are very worried about fire if you if, if you're living in southern california and you're in la you've seen fire you you've you've been aware of it and uh often a lack of knowledge leads to fear and so parents are in that position and so you have to be careful how you run it out and i think that's another piece about climate change is there's a lot of fear and hopelessness in media coverage and what's happening. And for young people, we need to give them a lot more hope. So our aim within our program, and we've been operating in national parks for more than 50 years, is to give good science-based work to reinforce people's learning and the idea of excitement of learning, but also to have optimism there. Because I think unless we're conveying some level of hope to young people, they they aren't going to necessarily find the answers that we need or the changes in behavior because they feel powerless to actually get us to that point of of of, of breaking the curve of of global temperature increase um we particularly in the in the areas like the united states and areas where we have educated um we have science that shows us what is the reality of the future uh, we shouldn't be afraid of talking about facts, but we have to couch that within optimism as well. I really like that phrase when you're saying it's got to be couched in optimism, because if something is portrayed in a, a purely educational way, like here are the facts, it's really terrible, it's a bit of a crisis, then that doesn't necessarily lead people to be active and proactive. And you've you've got to instill a sense of hope to make people want to do something. How important is that to your work? Well, I think you have to inspire people to be changed. I, I think that education can be real flat and it can just be about grades and just be about facts. 
And there's actually a more important part for me of education, which is having something that resonates with inside someone. Like build a connect, essentially build a connection to whatever you're teaching. So you make history real or you make, if you're teaching reading, you, you find culturally uh, sensitive pieces that speak to that person's identity. And I think that when, when an educator takes a step forward and is allowed to be inspirational, then students can build off of that. So how important do you think action is in your environmental education? I think you need to inspire people to, to, to be able to change the world on a local level. So it starts with personal action, then it starts with your community, then it goes region, then it goes national, then it goes international. I think when you, when you just confront someone with save the tiger, it's a very, <laughs> yeah. it's a very laudable thing, but it doesn't recognize the, the struggle that a burgeoning population in Southeast Asia has to find somewhere for people and has to figure out a way to be able to grow food. It, it, we have to look to ourselves first, and you sort of have bite-sized chunks to, bite, to, to tackle. The, the rarest cat in the world is the Scottish wildcat. It's the rarest cat in the world. Right in Britain, how many people are aware of that? I was and not so, aware of that. So we yeah. could, we could, if you want to do cat preservation, start with the Scottish wildcat. It's a really fascinating challenge of having this wild gene kept alive. And it's beyond rewilding. It's already wild. It's already exists. It's just it's just has all these pressures with feral cats and with habitat. So I think you you show children less David Attenborough and, and more what I would call grounded local uh, involvement. Britain is Britain's amazing to me. One of my dad's favorite facts was that Birmingham had more miles of canal than Venice. So we have that is these... a good fact as well. Oh, it's an amazing fact. And so you have this amazing series of waterways across the Britain that has access attached to it because of a towpath. So you have these riparian zones that are really important, not just for leisure and recreation and people's connection, but for water voles and otters and kingfishers, all of these things. You have this amazing industrial connection and kids just need to be made aware of that. Think of all the industrial towns in the north that had trade routes, they all had canal systems, and they all have canal systems. So people have access to water. Yeah, we're it's, very it's, lucky, actually, to still have that system, I think. You know, right, and, and there's, there's, good, there's good restoration projects that are happening for canals in Britain, but the idea that there is public access is very unusual. I think 70% of land or something crazy in Britain is privately held, and you're only, we only have access to less than 10% because of bridleways or historical footpaths uh but the the towpath of the canal is an amazing opportunity in a landscape from which people are excluded because you have that right it isn't a right of transfer trans uh trespass you have a right to walk that so you can see really cool stuff i was one of the things that i was struck by when i went back after a long break was uh i saw a snow at egret in a local park and my mum was like oh yeah there's, there's there's more of them coming in and that isn't just a fact of a safe zone for those birds it's also climate change and so there are these places you can show these indicators by allowing kids to explore their backyard where they become really good sources of data meaningful data and I, I, I struggle with the phrase citizen science because it, it sets up a class system of what 
what people are giving. The idea that real scientists have real data, but citizen science is secondary data. It's just a load of rubbish because all the great naturalists that I grew up reading about were all citizen scientists. They were all self-taught. They were all people who sat and observed stuff at Darwin. And you can see like companies really leveraging that now. You know, there's the big garden bird watches and the butterfly counts, isn't there? Where, you know, they're encouraging people to sit for an hour and just see, see what they see going past and make a note of it. And the idea of behavior change is saying, here's your, your attainable nature minute or nature hour or nature day. And, and to encourage people to engage uh, using technology in, in what I would call a creative way and celebrates innovation and shares data sets. But also you've got to teach kids how to, instead of taking a photograph of themselves and everything, that they take photographs of what they're seeing. Like I, one of the things we aspire to, we live in this iconic national park with these huge cliffs and amazing, I think it's the third or fourth highest waterfall in North America. And it's right there. And kids will fill the picture with themselves. So three quarters of the image is the same picture that you see all the time. With, so there's a little bit of scenery in the background. And you want to get them to get that shift where they're out of the picture and they're showing this thing to share. Oh, that'll happen when they get older. Maybe. (laughs) When they get a bit older, they suddenly, I'm sure the shine of having themselves in every single picture will will ease off. (laughs) You hope that, but it comes from role modeling, suggestion and conversation and the engagement and allowing kids, trusting kids to be able to make the right decision when they get enough information. Yeah, I mean, it's really important, isn't it? I think that outdoor education and environmental education starts with children, um, because once you've once you've got them thinking about their environment and the world they live in, it's it's pretty hard to go back on that. But if you if you never think about it and you get to adulthood and you've never really considered it, it's quite hard then to communicate with those people and and talk to them about why it's important. And and I think kids deserve uh, energetic engaged guides and instructors and teachers very early on in the outdoors who they can relate to. So for me, uh, I definitely reached a sell-by date in outdoor education when I was just too old. When you get into your late 20s and 30s and you're talking to teenagers, it's very rare you really have an understanding of what it's like to be a teenager at that point. And I I think sometimes we, we don't serve the students well because We've, we've had a 25, 30-year career in the outdoors, and we think we're still doing as good a job as we did when we were 22, 23, and I know I wasn't. I had less energy. I had less engagement. I had less understanding, and I couldn't talk to them on a sort of older peer level. And I think there's, that raises that question of who should be interacting. Well, we all have a role to play, and, we, and it's sort of segmented around age. But the most powerful people really to connect with kids are young people themselves. That's who we should be empowering leadership. So is it your hope then that you have the you have the conversations with them at Yosemite in your training facility and then they they get inspired and they take it away and they talk to each other about it? You want to set them up that they've they've got the communication skills to have a civilized debate. By civilized, I mean the ability to listen. And I I think there are different programs out there. There's a program that we have locally that's another nonprofit called Adventure Risk Challenge. And And it concentrates specifically within literacy, developing literacy skills within students from underserved communities. And that 
but that organization has gone through a huge overturn and now graduates of the program from when they were teenagers are now running the program. And that's essentially what you want to have is this, this role where the people who you're trying to teach uh, are represented by the, by the teachers. You, yeah. you, that message is, is not my message. My, I, my job is to, is to create an opportunity. So what are your biggest challenges facing Yosemite at the moment then? The biggest challenge in Yosemite is climate change. So you have a, a declining, I've, I've lived in around Yosemite for more than 20 years and where I used to have to go outside my house when I lived at 6,000 feet and dig all the way through the winter, now it happens a handful of times. So declining snowpack is very clear. And then the effect of fire is, 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 is so profound. We had three or four major fires around where we live now uh, this summer. So you have the same thing that Mediterranean climates are, uh, are struggling with worldwide. Uh, you're looking at just accelerated resource use. So we have this, this wildland urban interface is what we call it, the idea that you see more development into wild space. And although America's got vast amounts of undeveloped land, um, you still are impinging on habitat and you need to have corridors that, that are effective. So for certain species, climate change is isolating the alpine species because they're unable to move through the saddles to get to alternate peaks. But you also have this piece where species from the lower areas are being pushed to higher because they, they just it, it's, it becomes cooler for them to be able to survive rather than these high temperatures you might find in the lowlands. So there's a lot of environmental challenges. And then Yosemite in particular is a very popular park. At its peak, it had 5 million plus visitors, I think, in 2016. 5 million people. In a valley, the, most people go to the valley, which is seven miles long and one mile wide. I think on a busy day, you can have eight to 11,000 cars <laughs> in gridlock. <laughs> so you can't go anywhere. It's, you're just stuck. Um, and it that's that piece where it's it's a problem but is it a problem uh because you've got people using national parks that's really important that you have your constituents using this thing and five percent of yosemite is 95 percent of yosemite is wilderness so it's heavily permitted it's heavily controlled about who can go there so it's a very small amount that doesn't have that restriction yeah so i was you, yeah i was going to ask so how do you Obviously, you've got your, your programs with the children, but what do you do about the visitors and how do you, how do you gently influence their environmental, environmental education? Well, sometimes it isn't gentle. Yosemite for the last two or three years had a reservation system and you had to book to get in and they just got rid of that. Um, so the, it, in Yosemite, well, a lot of national parks in, in the US, there's a there's, a, there's essentially an education piece over ticketing. They work really hard to not punish people for, for misusing what they call the resource. But if you do something particularly egregious, like poaching or really bad food storage, uh, then you deserve the ticket that you probably get. And up north, if you go into Alaska, or again in Montana as well, Wyoming, if you if you don't follow the rules, you will ha you have run the risk of a very negative interaction with the wildlife. Like grizzly bears each year uh, predate or injure people in the backcountry, and in in Alaska, it's almost unavoidable to have interactions with with what I call megafauna. So whether it's moose <laughs> or grizzly, that's one of the reasons you go there. I've never heard that megafauna. <laughs> 
Well, I, the, the idea of megafauna, <laughs> for me, it comes from Britain, where I used to get really excited about going to, to, the, to a road that looked over some rich person's estate and kind of seeing some deer through the mist. And that was my wildlife, set, uh, wildlife experience. To, to be in Africa or to be in Australia or to be in any places where there are these enormous animals like buffalo wandering around, I'm still super excited by it. It's the idea of rewilding, for instance, that you see throughout Europe is fascinating to me because the the excitement of seeing a big herd of bison in, Yassel, in Yellowstone, where I, I was just doing some training, or to see a big bear footprint right by your cabin, is it's still... <sighs> is electrifying because we become smaller in that moment and part of the system. It's a great reminder of uh, to have humility. Yeah, I mean, you sometimes see people posting selfies of, of, of themselves with moose in the background, and you've got to wonder whether that's, yeah, how, how they managed that and stayed alive. Well, yeah, no, moose are super stompy. They, they have, they're basically a cow on stilts, so they're 1,200 pounds, and their defense mechanism is to just pound people down, and you're just getting stomped by them. I was I was in a I was in Anchorage, and I'd been up on uh, Denali, which is the highest peak, doing a search and rescue patrol, and I heard a noise at night in my friend's house, and it was a really loud noise right by the window. We were in a basement, and it sort of was some thrashing noises. And then we got up in the morning, we left, we went to the he- to, to the airport in the dark, and. Then my friend rang her up and said, oh, I just want to let you know that noise you heard last night. It was a moose that had tried to jump the fence next to your bedroom and it had got its back leg caught in the fence and it, it, it had actually uh, broke its femoral artery and it had bled out like hanging mm. off this fence six feet, two meters away from my bedroom window. And that was mm. right in the heart of the biggest city in Alaska. Wow. Oh, poor thing. But it, but but then there's that flip piece because you've got this animal that dies. You have this mechanism on a on a city level that comes and butchers the animal, and then that that meat goes to go and work with people who have food deprivation. It actually goes to work with the homeless population, and so they get high quality organic meat. Oh, so it did actually get used. Oh yeah, here there's a there's 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 a, a law that's just about to come out in California, I think, which is if you have roadkill, so a lot of deer get hit on the roads here, you can now salvage it and you can take it for meat. Yum. <laughs> yeah, it's it's and it's. I have a friend of mine who who doesn't ever buy commercial meat. All they do is they. Well, I have a few friends. I have a friend who's a subsistence hunter up in Alaska who each year they'll try and take a moose or a sheep and. Uh, my friend down here will just take uh, wild meat here, and that's all their family eats. Yeah, I'm I'm too vegetarian for that. I think, it, but it, there's that argument around, uh, which is that this is a good example of the conversation you have with students. Is it's okay? We're going to live in a vegetarian world. Do we understand the scale of of industrial farming? Because industrial farming isn't particularly friendly to wildlife, and you're not expressing an opinion. You're having a conversation, and you can have an ethical reason against killing animals. Which is which is has value. You can have that conversation. I think the pol- the polarization of debate, which is I have to be right and you have to be wrong, that's what we have to tell kids or, or help kids to understand. Actually, debate is having a sane conversation. Well, like I said before, I think you you learn so much more about the world and about yourself through outdoor education or environmental education. You know, becoming a part, becoming connected to the world you live in is 
is so much so much bigger than just calling it outdoor education it's um yeah it's it's a wide ranging thing it has to it, I, I think that uh I, in my experience uh the best experiences for kids are ones that become mythical and by that i mean in their own mind they spin this story that is that is makes it so great that it shines for a long period of time. And I was on a hike up in the northwest, and we used to do this little peak called Storm King, and we got all the way up there, and there was just clouds swirling around. So the view that we would normally see of this fantastic lake, Lake Crescent, was completely obliterated. And there was a young man who was just standing there with his hand out, and he was just trying to sort of opening and shutting his hand. And I asked him what he was doing, and he said, I'm trying to catch a cloud so I can tell my mom that I touched a cloud. Oh, that's amazing. And that, that, that piece, that innocence, in a way, is, 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 chi- is truly childlike. I love that. I love that idea that I could, t- I could do a whole lesson about weather coming off the, in the Pacific Northwest, coming off the Pacific. I could do a whole thing about geology up there with Mount Storm King. We could have had this distraction of a great view. But in that moment, he was chasing this, this singular experience. And that is, that's what we should never, uh, as an outdoor educator, you should always be ready for the most surprising lesson because it isn't what you're teaching. Yeah, yeah. It's about people having their own experiences and, and learning, you know, learning what they're going to take from it, I suppose, rather than what, yeah, what you're trying to teach. Yeah, allowing everybody to have their own song. Yeah, it's in a group of twelve or fourteen kids. If you could break the pattern of the classroom that has the alphas, the betas, and the person who's sort of always at the bottom, and you can reset that to become a democratic group that everybody has an equal voice, then everybody's song gets to be heard, and that's all. That's all that kids want to have. I, 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 they want to belong for the most part, and they want to be able to sing their song. So if you have a kid who had who is neuro has a neurological challenge is a little bit different that kid wants to be valued like every other kid and it, it the beauty of the outdoors is it, it's the equalizer i yeah. love i love rainy day and every and the kids got their back they got their jacket in the bottom of their backpack and they have to unpack everything and they they learn at that moment oh I, I, and you help them through it so they have a positive experience and then they get a jacket on you have a laugh about that and say well it's it's, it's light sensitive. It, your rain jacket saw the light and it just ran to the darkest place at the bottom of your backpack. <laughs> like, and you make, it, you make that light as a lesson, then it doesn't, the harshness of, of, of getting it wrong is, is dissipated. And kids are much more likely to take a, a positive out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And you never stop learning either. You know, you can have these experiences every single time you go outdoors. I think you learn something um, if you're open to it. Yeah, I was out tracking the other day on um, up in the snow with a group, and I hadn't seen it before, but you could actually see a fox track where his little legs had been sort of trying to deal with deep snow, and you could see this belly scoop of the animal <laughs> uh, as he sort of had sort of struggled up and through it. And you, it's a very peculiar track because a beaver, when it when it tracks, it has that heavy tail, and it kind of obliterates its tr- its track as it's coming out. And fishers, which is the arboreal otter, like have this offset, offset track, which is kind of funky. But to see this beautiful uh, story get told in the snow and then have people look at it and try to understand it, that that's wonderful. I love that. I love that. 
I would love nothing more than a walk with you in Yosemite right now. I think we could have a really, a really lovely <laughs> chat. Um, it would be, yeah, that would be great. Um, but before I let you go, I have to ask, and I'm sure all the children ask, is Moose your real name? No, my, my real name's Jonathan. Um, and I got the nickname Moose after I was named after a deer head uh, in the Red Lion pub in Sedba. <laughs> <laughs> which was we we affectionately called the moose and i would go up there every every friday night at summer camp and i would sit try to sit underneath the big moose head and sometimes i'd be up there a bit early and everybody else because i'd be able to be reassigned due to a challenge at my job position um <laughs> and one day someone sort of came in and said good evening to the deer head the moose and then they saw me and i said hi and then the nickname stuck and Fantastic. then and that piece is accessibility is that the the place to start with children is often to have a name in which they don't they're not shy about saying it out loud and they haven't forgotten your name and so it it just has stayed with me for more than thirty years. Yeah, you're the you're the first moose I've met, and and probably the last. <laughs> but it's been it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and thank you so much for coming back. My pleasure, and good luck out there. Thank you. And thank you too for listening to this episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. Let me know what you thought by leaving reviews on your podcast platform or by emailing me at live at cicerone.co.uk. I'd love to hear from you. To keep up to date with the podcast, you can follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app. You can also listen on the Cicerone website where you can browse our full range of guidebooks, read plenty of articles and sign up to our newsletter. Have a look at cicerone.co.uk. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, search for at Cicerone Press on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And you can also join our Facebook community group, Cicerone Connect, to connect with other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.